Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, our reading this morning is on the service sheets, but you can also find it in the Bibles and the pews on page 586. It is Psalm 73, and we'll start at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my thanks to the musicians, to the choir for leading us, for Ben. Uh, My thanks uh, also to you for coming. Uh, It is uh, very good to see you here. If you're here as a guest, uh, Ben has already welcomed you. But again, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to you. It's uh, wonderful uh, that you've come among us. As we address this question uh, today, how can I believe in God when people get away with murder? That's our question this morning. And it's not only a very reasonable question to ask at any time, And a question that people often ask, but as we think of the news this week, it's a very relevant question, isn't it? The uh, terrorist attacks on the Westgate shopping centre in Nairobi raises this very question. Uh, While news reports tell us that all those who carried out the attack were either shot dead or crushed when the building collapsed, what about those in al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda, organisations who have orchestrated the attack those who are radicalising impressionable people, training them and equipping them to carry out these barbaric acts, it seems that they have got away with murder. 
as was mentioned uh, in the prayers, we could think about the situation in Syria, the bombs in Pakistan. When we see this sort of stuff going on in the world, we'll ask this sort of question, how can I believe in God when people get away with murder? Now, for some, it's not just an intellectual question. Uh, some years ago, someone said to me, there are um, armchair sufferers and wheelchair sufferers. Uh, what they meant by that was that there are some for whom this question of injustice in the world comes when they watch the television news in their armchair. They don't suffer personally, but it's still an important question and it needs to be addressed. But there are others who are suffering personally, if I may put it this way, wheelchair sufferers, those who are suffering personally. This is much more than an intellectual question. It's deeply personal. Now, there'll be people here this morning who are mad with God. In your own life, you've experienced real injustice. So uh, uh, someone gets diagnosed with cancer in time to have treatment that brings a cure, another doesn't. By the time they know they've got it, there's nothing they can do about it. And it happens to the nicest people, those who are kind and thoughtful and well, just good to have around. While some of the most obnoxious and downright unpleasant pieces of work never have a trouble in the world, it all seems so random. And you look on and it doesn't make sense. And you're mad with God. And as I say that, I'm, I'm thinking about people who believe as well as those who don't. Indeed, as we address this issue this morning by looking at Psalm 73, which uh, is printed out on this service order if you want to uh, have it in front of you. As we address this issue by looking at Psalm 73, we're looking at a psalm that is written by a believer. A believer who was, again, if I may put it this way, a wheelchair sufferer. He knew what it was to suffer. He describes himself in verse 21 there. Do you see it down uh, two-thirds of the way down the page? He describes himself as embittered, whose heart was grieved. He says, I was mad at you, God. Now, there'll be some here this morning. You wouldn't call yourselves wholehearted followers of Jesus. Look, thank you very much for coming this morning. We're so pleased you've, you've made the effort to engage with this most crucial question today. Uh, because uh, of things that have happened to you, this may be the, for you the last throw of the dice. When you were given this invitation, you thought to yourself, well, I'll, I'll go and see what he has to say, but the, really the way it's turned out for me, I find it very hard to believe that there is a God. Well, already I hope you're encouraged this morning to see the Bible is very real. The psalmist here, a, real, a, a believer, is mad with God. The psalmist believes that as far as he was concerned, he was a decent bloke. Look at how he describes himself in verse 13. He says, I've kept my heart pure. I've got clean hands. I'm an innocent man. But, verse 14, he's afflicted. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. You see, put verses 13 and 14 together and you begin to see why the question before us for this man was not purely intellectual. He has a personal stake in this question. Verse 13, he's lived a de decent life, a good life. He's, he's worked hard at being good, but every morning, all day long, he's in pain. What a thing that is to endure constant pain. That's what this guy feels, and it's miserable. Now, if that isn't bad enough, he, he sees around him people are making no effort, no effort to lead a decent life. In fact, some of them are, are nasty pieces of work, and he looks at them, and life's a beach for them. 
And so on the one hand, he's tried to live a good life and he's been dealt a really tough hand. And then on the other, there are those who don't live by the rules and they don't seem to have a care in the world. And so the psalmist writes right at the beginning in verse three, he says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I envied them. Now the verses that follow verse three are a brilliant description of why he envied these wicked people. Verse four, he says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're beautiful people, tanned, fit, slim, gorgeous. Nothing ever seems to go wrong for them, verse five. They are free from the burdens common to man. Redundancy is not a word in their vocabulary. They're always lucky in love. They're a picture of health, verse five. Uh, These people are not plagued by human ills, never struck down by sickness. And maybe it's because it goes so well for them that they become, well, kind of obnoxious, really. Verse six, therefore pride is their necklace. They're so full of themselves. They think nothing of railroading over anyone who gets in their way. Second half of verse six, they clothe themselves with violence. And they're always on the make at someone else's expense, ducking and diving, scheming and conniving. That's verse seven. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They seem to have no conscience. They don't lose sleep over the the trail of broken lives that they leave behind them. They have no concern for others. They'll, They'll happily walk all over you if you get in their way. Verse eight, they scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. You can just hear them say it, can't you? Don't get in my way and don't you dare cross me. Don't you dare cross me. It's a brilliant description of people who seem to get away with murder. Maybe as we've been reading this, you know someone just like this. Someone who's crossed you and just thinking about them begins to raise your blood pressure. You really do despise these people. But what is really bizarre is that while we loathe people like that, while we detest their callous actions, while we certainly don't want to become what they are, we can still find ourselves envying them, wanting to be in their position because everything goes so well for them. That's verse three. And we've all met these sorts of people. They think they're so great. They even push God off his throne. See it, verse nine? Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Yes, the world really is their oyster. They just don't seem to have a care in the world, verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. They've got everything they need and want. And when you meet people like that, people who've made no attempt to live a decent life and yet have everything, you'll be tempted to conclude that there's no point serving God. That's verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. Why have I bothered following Jesus all these years? Or, or if you're not yet a believer, why should I start? What's the point of trying to live under God's rule, serving him faithfully? What is the point in all that? If those who ignore God, those who shun God, not only get away with it, but seem to be better off as a result of it. That's what's going on in verse 13. And I want to suggest that the more you've tried to live a good life, the bigger this is a problem for you. See, verse 13, why have I bothered to be good? Fat lot of good, that did me. So, far from this being an issue for people with weak consciences or for people who aren't good people, I might go as far as to suggest that if you've 
never, if you've never been bothered by this question, you've never really tried very hard in life. It really gets our goat when we've tried to do the right thing and still we suffer while those who do the wrong thing prosper and get away with murder. That's the very point of the psalm. The very thing that provoked the psalmist to write as he does. Having said all that, look how the psalm begins, verse 1. He actually says at the beginning, surely God is good. You see, the psalmist has wrestled with this issue of the injustice in the world. It's been a real and personal struggle for him. But by the time he writes the psalm, even though he sees wicked people seemingly get away with murder, by the time he writes the psalm, he believes there is a God and that this God is a good God. And the turning point for the psalmist comes in verse 17. I'll read from verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, all this stuff of injustice, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. It did its head in. All the injustice in the world, it drive him mad. Until, verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. That is the final destiny of wicked and arrogant people. Everything changed, you see, in verse 17, as he walks into the sanctuary. In the sanctuary, in God's presence, he... He saw the big picture. And especially second line of verse 17, he understood the final destiny of the wicked. He came to realise that there will be a final day of reckoning. Look how he describes that day in verses 18 to 20. Surely you, God, place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. In those three verses, there are three vivid descriptions here of how it really is for those who live a wicked life. And the first comes in verse 18. For me, it's the picture of a rock climber. A rock climber is about to reach the summit, about to conquer the mountain, but then loses his grip and falls hundreds of feet to his death, dashed on the rocks below to ruin Just moments before, he seemed to be so successful. That's the fate of the wicked. Like the rock climber, they seem to be climbing high. But when they come before the Lord God Almighty, they will be brought crashing down. The second picture in verse 19 is of an idyllic stroll by the seaside going horribly wrong. You can imagine the report in the newspaper. A young couple were yesterday swept away by a freak wave while enjoying a walk by the sea. The report would tell how uh, they were walking amongst the rock pools when out of the blue and totally unexpectedly a freak wave washed them away. The report continues, the Coast Guard has called off the search and all hope of finding them alive has been lost. See it there in verse 19? Swept away. That's the fate of the wicked on that final day. Their life may seem as idyllic and perfect as a holiday stroll by the seaside They don't seem to have a care in the world, but they are in great danger. And in an instant, at the end of their lives, they'll be swept away to destruction. The third picture in verse 20 is of having a a wonderful dream. Have you ever had one of those dreams when you you wake up, you you actually want to go straight back to sleep to get back into the dream again because it was so good, you want to enjoy some more, see how it ends, it's going so well, but you can't get it back. How frustrating is that? Because it was never real, just a world of fantasy. Again, he says in verse 20, that's the fate of the wicked. 
On the final day, they're going to wake up with a start and as they discover that to have ignored God is to live in a dream world. And when reality bites, it will really hurt. They'll never get that life back again. Three arresting pictures, and they are terrifying. But for the psalmist, they're also wonderfully reassuring. And they can be for us too. When we have this eternal perspective of a final day of reckoning, it begins to answer the problem of all the injustice we see in the world. And the character of God is upheld. The wicked will not get away with murder. Justice will be done. God is a good God. He doesn't turn a blind eye to evil and rebellion. We see that on that final day. See, as we look at the events of Nairobi or Syria or Pakistan, as we have to deal with our own personal miscarriages of justice, this is wonderfully comforting. Psalm 73, it's a brilliant psalm. Now, as we, uh, as we draw to a close, let me, let me bring some things together here. First, hear this wonderful news. The Bible teaches that God does not and will not ignore all the just injustice in the world. People won't get away with murder. There is a final day of reckoning. Of course, if people did get away with it, you'd be right not to believe in God or certainly not to follow a God who allowed such a thing. God is a perfect judge and all wrong will be punished. And that, you see, is why Christians believe in a day of reckoning, in a judgment day and in a place of punishment beyond the grave. It is right that evil is punished. Evil matters to God. Murder matters to God. Six million Jews matter to God. 9-11 matters to God. Syria and Somalia and Kenya and Pakistan matter to God. God will judge wickedness. That is good news. But it's also very bad news. Because if we're honest with ourselves, there's plenty in our own lives that is not right. One day I too will stand before an almighty and holy God and I will stand before him with a blotted copybook. The poet John Clare wrote, if life had a second edition, how I would correct the proofs. You know that feeling? Regrets? We all have them. Skeletons in the cupboard? That longing to be able to turn the clock back and live that bit again. It was some years ago now that someone uh, uh, put it to me this way, that, that if I only did one wrong thing a day and only thought one wrong thing a day and only said one wrong thing a day, I, I'd live an almost perfect life. Just three sins a day, it's almost perfect. But he went on to say that would be 21 sins in a week, 1,000 in a lifetime, 1,000 in a year, 70,000 in a lifetime. And that would be a nearly perfect life. In reality, I, I, I don't know about you, I will stand before God with a list as long as my arm and many more reasons to fear his judgment. And the greatest problem of all is I've cut him out of my life. Remember how the psalmist described himself in verse 13? He said, I've got clean hands and a pure heart. But that's just not the case. Oh, sure, compared to some in the world, which is what he was looking at here, he was a saint, but compared to a holy God... So left here, what what appeared to be such good news that God would judge all wrongdoing is now thoroughly bad news because I too will be judged. 
And so as we close, let me take you back to the sanctuary, verse 17. Do you remember in the sanctuary, in the temple, the the psalmist saw things from God's perspective, but he also saw something else every time he went into the temple. In the temple he saw an altar, and he saw sacrifices on the altar, pure, unblemished animals being sacrificed to take away sin. And every time an animal was sacrificed, it said, sin is so bad, someone must pay with their life. You can pay for sin yourself or you can give a substitute in your place to take the punishment. See, in his law, God made provision for someone else to pay. But none of those sacrifices in the temple, the bulls, the goats, the lambs, none of them were enough to deal with all my sin. That's why I'd have to keep going back to the temple day after day with another sacrifice. But here's the wonderful thing about the Christian gospel. There came a day when God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come and die on the cross as the sacrificial lamb. Do you remember the words as he stepped onto the stage? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In a world of injustice, uh, uh, Jesus knew about injustice. Every kind of injustice. He was wrongly accused, betrayed by a friend, brought before a kangaroo court, deserted by those he loved. An innocent man, he was beaten with sticks, had thorns pushed into his head, flogged to within an inch of his life, nailed through his hands and feet and hung out to die on a cross. People seem to get away with murder. He was the only one who has ever walked this planet as a completely innocent person. He really did keep his heart pure. He really did have clean hands. He was innocent, really completely innocent, and that's why he was able to be our substitute, to suffer so that we don't have to take the punishment. And he was willing to do that because he loves you. Here then is the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. God does deal with injustice. Justice will be done. No one will get away with murder. There will be a day of reckoning. But then as the relief of that turns to horror, as we begin to believe what that will mean for us, as we look at our own lives and how far short we fall, God says, I'll deal with that too. I'll die for you. You can be forgiven so that you can face me on that day of reckoning with confidence. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we can believe in a God, despite all the injustice in the world. Well, thanks so much for listening. Uh, I believe there'll be some here who will be saying, you know, I want to know more. Uh, There's been enough there for me to think, I want to look into this a bit more. Well, if that's you, I'm going to be standing on the door as you, as you leave. And uh, I've got some booklets which will uh, fill out a bit more, allow you to read more about Jesus at your own leisure, carefully. It's not long. Uh, do please grab one of these and just say, I- I'd like one. I've also got invitations to the Reason for God course, and, and we'd love you to come. A week on Tuesday, as Ben mentioned, it begins. You might not want to come for a whole five weeks at the moment, but uh, you might just want to come for the first week, see if you like it. I- I've, got a- I've got a feeling you will. Again, I'll give you one of these if you want uh, on the door and, uh, and you can come along if, if you like.